Hello, everyone. Redcoat here, lead designer and producer for Vernacular Games. And Santier here also, the technical director for Vernacular Games. So we've got a couple guests in today for our um, Vernacular podcast. Um, the makers, designers, and uh, all-around good guys at Warding Circle, they're releasing a game called uh, Mysteries of the Yokai, or rather, they're um, kickstarting a game called Mysteries of the Yokai. Um, I'd like for each of them to introduce themselves now. Yep, I'm Andrew. I'm the lead designer at uh, Warding Circle. I created Mysteries of the Yokai, and I'm also in charge of the setting design. Uh, hi, I'm Matt Trussell. I'm the content system designer. I basically take Andrew's stuff and make it really boring with numbers. And I'm Richard Martija. I'm the producer and editor for Mysteries of the Yokai. I basically do just about everything these guys don't do and some of what they do do. And I just learned how to pronounce Richard's last name. I've been doing it wrong all these years. Oh, that's okay. So have I. <laughs> yes, he has. <laughs> so, yeah, this is the crew um, over at Warding Circle. And uh, as, as stated before, uh, their game, Mysteries of the Yokai, they're kickstarting it right now. And uh, it is a tabletop game. Um, very unique, actually. A lot of really cool stuff going on with it. Uh, we're just going to do a little bit of a talk here with the, with the team and uh, learn a few things about the development of the game, some specific bits and pieces about how it uh, works. So, uh, without further ado, Andrew, why don't you get us started here? Um, so, Mysteries of the Yokai, what is it about? Well, it's set in ancient Japan, and it's all about how... The, the, this alternate version of ancient Japan, they're, they're, the worlds of the spirits and the worlds of man are kind of colliding because of various reasons. Um, that could come out in the setting, will come out in the setting. But uh, it's really about the kinds of conflicts that occur when two cultures clash. And I, I think personally that's interesting because that's the experience of my life. But um, we should probably mention specifically that it's a tabletop RPG. Just you know, just so you don't think we're making a board game or something. It's a, oh yeah, it is. A tabletop I mean, we could RPG. make a board game about this too. I mean, it's a really interesting subject matter. But it's a it, virtual experience. It, it, is, it is. It is. It is. You know, for some neck. reason, I thought we had said that it was a tabletop RPG already, but it is a tabletop RPG, and I have a record of of of, of saying that it's a tabletop RPG too late. So there we go. It's now been said. So yeah, looking at that, so a tabletop RPG. It's about. Uh, ancient Japan and a an alternate version where the yokai or you know basically like demons and ghosts mm -hmm. are out and about doing their thing. So why why this setting? Why why choose something like this? Well, I've always really liked ancient Japan. Like I actually grew up reading manga and and anime, and I was a uh, young Asian American boy, right? And I had to come to terms with the fact that I was Asian, and and so like part of that was actually through anime. Me, me rediscovering that kind of other part of me. It was really a formulative part of my life. And so ever since that childhood filled with like influences from Japan, I, I just kept going. I kept researching. And, and further, I, I just wanted to see what the Japanese shared with all of us. And I think that this game is kind of that getting out into the world and, and my expression of that feeling. So, so this game was kind of an embodiment of, of your let's say, appreciation for the Japanese culture. Mm -hmm. And so what, what are some of the challenges of, you know, putting that into game form? Well, first of all, like, it, just Japanese culture itself is kind of tough because we have a lot of very solidified, very specific tropes regarding Japanese and ja Japanese things here in the U.S. And so part of the challenge of running this game was actually translating that 
translating things that are hard to translate or almost untranslatable was one thing, but it's the things that people are already kind of familiar with, but only familiar with from other media that was the most difficult because then we had to tread very lightly for so we don't cause confusion, you know? Like, there's a lot of conversations me and Matt have regarding this, and he's been pretty good about making sure I don't get too far into a uh, Japan land where no one can understand me anymore, you know? So, yeah, if well, I can just jump in on that. Yeah, uh, one of the things when we first started, Andrew brought it up and he said, we really want to be uh, respectful if not 100% accurate to the backstory that we're drawing from. And so what we did was try and look at what is the difference between those media that we're used to seeing, the anime, the manga, short stories, and what is a game different from those? And how can we let the players experience them without stepping on them to give them the same sense of wonder and exploration that you get from those in a way that maybe Westerners are more comfortable consuming quickly without having to look up in a dictionary or, you know, but also at that point without so converting things that they lose their meaning and are watered down. Also, we got to keep a focus because, uh, you know, one of the attractive things about this setting is it's a bit of an angle that's not done so much in tabletop RPGs. It's done a little bit in uh, other media. The point is to focus on kind of the creatures and the mystery of uh, Japanese folklore. There's a, there are other tabletop games that focus on various Japanese things. They focus on like culture or samurai or all sorts of things. Uh, we wanted to keep it really focused to this one thing, to the supernatural and the themes of balance and harmony with the supernatural that you see in a lot of other Japanese works, but not in games. Yeah, like definitely this brings to mind like Mushishi as a very recent anime that kind of follows that sort of idea. Oh yeah, Mushishi's been a huge influence. In fact, I think it might have been the spark that kind of started this whole process. I mean, I already had this kind of setting boiling in the back of my head since we started playing that Dresden game, actually, because I played an Anyo in that Dresden game, and, you know, it was just boiling in the back of my head, but then I watched Mushishi and I was like, that, that's what I want. All right. I, I want to be able to understand people, understand the supernatural, kind of come to an understanding of ourselves through something. Um, and you can do that in media easily, but I want to see what it's like when it comes into a game. Yeah, there's something really engaging when you go beyond the ninja and samurai tropes. So, like, what did you do to try to make it not just ninja and samurai fight monsters? But yeah, that that is hard because, you know, um, when you come to a tabletop RPG, lots of people think, you know, oh, I see a monster. What, what am I going to do? I'm going to gonna whack it or something, you know? Um, and that, that's not everyone, but... Um, poke it with a stick. Or at least poke it with a stick, yeah. How much experience is that worth? Yeah, that too. In fact, we ran into that during one of our playtests. That's a very memorable story, maybe later. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, the challenge is... Is basically, it's just about framing because actually reality, like in all media, framing is important. But I think that in games and video games are included, the framing you choose, what you choose to show is very, very important to the experience of our, of the players. And if you show them that they have another way out, they will consider that other way. But you have to make sure you show them in a way that is a viable way. And that actually led to one of our core mechanics being we abstracted combat to be less about what does this hit do to my target, how much HP is left, and more about the morale of each side. So you can take actions that are not necessarily the ninja striking the yokai, and more about my character's personal thing is talking. I'm not necessarily a diplomat, but by empathizing, I still affect the battle in the same way that the samurai who uses his intimidation. Um, you know, So we have an equivalent of all actions can push you towards your goal, and all the actions the enemy take can push you away from your goal. And then on top of that, we tried to get away from locking you into 
classes because we did figure that, you know, the samurai and the ninja, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the ninja being something here that it's not necessarily in the, the source material. You know, we think of the, the two, the master ninja and the great northern plains ninja hordes. And, uh, even <laughs> if you are more familiar with the actual assassin troubleshooter ninjas, you know, we wanted to not necessarily paint you into that corner to let you be something and experience what you might have been in that setting uh, without having to have a hard character class. Like, lots of people have different ideas as to what a ninja is, and yeah. we wanted to make sure that that idea could, could be done in our system and they can still be called a ninja. So I feel like we've gotten a pretty good idea of uh, mm-hmm. some of that. So I wanted to take a look at the mechanical side of things now. Uh, Matt, you were the systems designer. Um, so looking at these these high concepts of you know going into the east and really looking at it from that standpoint, but but still making it kind of accessible to uh, to the Western game player, how how would you say um, you went about translating these kinds of concepts into uh, into mechanics? Well, the first thing that we did, and and this is actually what got me really excited with the system, is Andrew wanted something where everyone works together. And he had an idea for uh, a line, a morale line, where your actions would push one way and the enemies would push another. And we took a look at that and we said, okay, how can we stat that up? You know, what does that play like? And we cut individual HP right away. And it was it was a tough call because not only is that such a different thing for people to get their heads around, but it actually does have the problem of taking a player out of the action a little bit. You know, you are no longer tracking your individual accolades. You are part of a group. And so from that and our idea of the line, we refined it to be what actions are in our system? What can you do that still makes you meaningful? And it supports the party overall, but doesn't trivialize the player. So what what I did was I would ask Andrew how he saw a lot of things panning out, and then we would play test them, iterate on them, and I'd come back with ideas. Uh, at first, we didn't even put numbers on them, but we, we broke the line into two lines so that we had more fine control and that players could take actions that may not necessarily be vital. You know, it's not really fun if every action wins or loses the battle. So we broke it into smaller steps. We let you do things that, uh, might pay off later. The early version was very snowball-y. Like, yes. Alpha, oh yeah. alpha strikes were almost mandatory in our game. Otherwise, you would sit on the middle of the bar. Um, you know, it's like a, a Dragon Ball Z beam struggle. You would kind of just wait for one person to break. And so we turned it more into a, the combination of player actions leads to an overall, um, we created the tide bar from our original morale bar and broke morale into a separate number. So by doing actions together as a team, you push the tide bar. And when the tide bar gets to a certain number, then a point of morale is inflicted, which can then affect individuals kind of like hit points, but it's not a binary thing. You're not either up or down. Uh, we wanted morale to be a thing where you could maybe have to leave because you are no longer effective or you're scared. You know, Whatever it is you define your character as, brave, uh, maybe greedy, you have, no longer have a stake, and then come back because we had to have a mechanic. Originally, we, we didn't have a mechanic where if you were forced out, you could come back. And we sat at a table and we said, nobody wants to be that guy who gets forced out because his character concept is not necessarily a warrior. You know, we don't want to force you to be a warrior, but we don't want you sitting at the table eating chips and stuff, waiting for your character to come back in while everyone else is having fun. From there, it was a lot of taking Andrew and Richard's knowledge of the character types and then creating those actions that you can take in the game 
that actually have an effect on the overall morale system and be meaningful and kind of creating the game equivalent, not necessarily just the Western equivalent, but the table gaming equivalent of this is an attack, this is a defend, this is a dodge, you know, an intercept, uh, this is a higher damage, this is a burst attack, DPS, things like that. And then running it by them and saying, okay, how do we keep this true to the lore and make it sound immersive without it just being, I have a plus three, yes. you know, I, I, I roll Here's this mechanic. these dice. I gotta say though, I really do love the, the term we came up with tide of battle. Well, it's, you know, it's not a term we came up with. It's a term that's used. And that's what's so great about it is it's, uh, you say the tide of battle. What do you think about? You think about, oh, well, these guys are doing better than these other guys. And, uh, that's what it really is, is the tide represents the, you know, who has the current advantage, who has the current upper hand in the struggle. And, uh, the morale's not there until they, you know, they keep that advantage or, you know, cement that advantage. And that, that's when the other side starts to lose morale. And, so speaking uh, of the tide, absolutely. wasn't like Redcoat, like one of the people who were involved in the process of naming the tide? I think you were right there. Yes. Weren't you? Um, the, yeah, the story yeah. is that I think you did name it, didn't uh, you? Redcoat and I were throwing around terms to bring to Andrew. He was off. He was going to come into a meeting. And, um, Redcoat said, uh, you know, how about tide? It makes sense. And, I flash back to Transformers the movie and Prime did it. He turned the tide. And I just said, okay, this is, we're not going to pitch any more words. This is the word we're going with. And, and, and I thanked Redcoat and yeah. said, you've, you've just made this game so much cooler. Yeah, by actually, doing I that. was there. I remember it was something about, about talking about how the sea, the sea goes back and forth and, and, and something about that too. And then, then you know, yes, Transformers Red, Redcoat's just... was much more eloquent oh, than yes. mine. Mine was simply a movie reference. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, that just comes with being a f- vocalist, and I mean, I named the I named the group vernacular for a reason. I'm a talky dude, but mm-hmm. any case, but enough about me. So, thinking about uh, the tide system and just how unique it is, why go for something so unique? Why go for something so very different from the rest of you know gaming standard? In any tabletop RPG, so there are so many on the market right now, you have to be motivated to make your own system because there's lots of really great generic systems out there that for all different levels of crunch and all different levels of fluff. So what you really want to do is want you want to have a core mechanic that best serves the type of game you're trying to do. The most important question you can ask is what do your players do in this game? And uh, how does your mechanic let them do that and let them be good at doing that and let them have fun doing that? You know, we went with the system because that's what the game is really about is it's like, okay, so what do the players do? They struggle against the opposition and they bring balance and they do this as a team. And there are many factors that will go into a struggle. It's not just a battle. It's a conflict or a struggle. It's two sides with opposing goals trying to uh, accomplish those goals by whatever means they can. Yeah, the the abstraction really helped us um, by pulling out the individual health points. We can create actions that affect the title battle that don't necessarily do damage. Um, it it means that talky characters are equally as important as fighty characters, as thinking characters, even you know sneaking characters who can do something that you wouldn't think of. You know, just disappearing from battle normally wouldn't be an offensive action, but if you confuse the foe through doing it, you're actually helping your side. So by Taking the approach we did with this system, we were able to get the kind of gameplay, which the overall goal we wanted was reward people for being themselves and playing the characters they wanted. Yeah, exactly. So as kind of a follow-up question, how do you make it so that way, if if a lot of actions have a lot of different ways of influencing this tide of battle, how do you make it so that way a character does feel unique and all the characters don't feel like they're just the same thing? It's just like, oh, here's my move the tide by one or move the tide by three or whatever. How do you make them feel 
more distinct and unique from each other? Well, we have a lot of modifiers, things um, that you do that aren't necessarily just damage, uh, lingering effects, debuffs and buffs, different numbers. You know, you could have attacks that do a lot of damage but cost key, which is our, our magic point system. And then you have things that uh, impose modifiers to the battlefield, situational modifiers. So I may not be directly doing damage with this action, but I'm affecting my friends, giving them more defense, giving them more chance to hit, setting them up for later or even setting up things that may pay off in later scenes. We wanted to track uh, your actions. So a combat could be a fistfight, but it could also be an overall one-session investigation. You may use an ability in the first where you just punch a guy and he takes damage, whereas in the second, everyone splits off to do their investigations, and the person representing the Emperor goes and talks to people and uses their influence, whereas the more shady character goes and bribes people. And when you come to the trial or the interview at the end, the... Emperor's representative does a ton of damage through their authority, but then the other person gets to play their surprise guest interview card and bring in something uh, that may not have a complete stat line. You know, there's no stat line for, oh, we found the Emperor's illegitimate child, but the Game Master has tools in the book to say, well, that's kind of equivalent to a backstab attack. So I'm going to use the rules for the backstab attack uh, for this thing that you did on the spot. So you're not necessarily just locked into what's printed on your character sheet. You can use the rules from the book too, situationally, and have more variance there if you're feeling that we are, we're all playing a group of samurai, we all have the sword of strike, but this person approaches it this way, this person approaches it that way. Let's look at what they can do that isn't a sword strike. Like, really, um, a major point to make any character different? Like, I think this is important in video games too, but to make a player feel different when they've chosen something, like chosen a class or chosen a path, to make them feel different from each other, is you influence what are they thinking. You influence the decisions they can make during play. And what Matt's describing here is that lots of people can choose to approach things differently, and that's a completely different line of thinking. Um, sneaking around is using a different set of skills, yes, and that's kind of similar but the player's thinking in a different way. And if every single player thinks in their own way, I'd say that we're successfully making sure that each character feels different. Yeah, Andrew's right. The Just reskinning the mechanics, this power is used one way. So, say, protective circle, you can create it as I draw a circle and power it with key. But you can also say, I'm a tactician. I'm planning with my soldiers around me. And while they're mechanically the same, they're actually they're very different in play, and they feel fun because you're doing it your way and getting the results you want without having to sacrifice your way of doing it. Yeah, the way things feel is, you know, a lot of times it's more important to the player than the way things are. Like mm-hmm. the, the classic example, is, I think it was Valve was doing some uh, public playtesting, and the playtester said, oh, this gun's not powerful enough, and they made the gun more powerful, and they still didn't think it was powerful enough. But what they wanted was they wanted the gun to feel more powerful, so to fix it, they just made the sound of the gun louder, and then the gun was more powerful, even though nothing had changed. In a way, I think that our system actually has a bit of an advantage in that sense because you always feel like you're doing things your way. I mean, most systems have a unified mechanic and basically everything in the game is doing a check the same way. Like you're playing D&D, mm-hmm. like talking to someone is a D20 roll, uh, picking a lock is a D20 roll. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're all the same mechanic. It's just that it still manages to feel different though. And in our way, I think because we can let you get use out of whatever your specific power is, it always feels like you're doing it your way. You're always thinking creatively, and I, I really like that about our system. So, in other words, the system kind of does a good job of getting out of the way of 
flavor and players flavorfully expressing their characters. Yes, that yeah. was really important. Yeah. We've, we've all played games that we loved, but the character concept we wanted wasn't in-universe enough. And we mm-hmm. knew that having this very specific lore, we didn't want to lock players into every one of this cast or every one of this ability has to define it this way. Mm-hmm. Right. Not everyone wants to play a samurai who's a snooty feudal lord, which is, you know, historically that's what most of them were. Like people want to be the rogue hero adventure samurai sometimes too. Yeah. More the Ronin character or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And even something as small as Mikey Blast is purple and that guy's is green. It's not boiled into the book. One thing I've seen with role playing is a lot of players feel like if it's not in the book, they can't do it. And we mm-hmm. didn't want people to feel like everything had to be statted out and numbered for them. We wanted to give them enough tools to build their own and then encourage them to flavor it their own way. And we've really seen this in our playtesting when uh, when that switch flips and the box opens up in their mind. And yeah. they, they suddenly are like, ah, I could do this and it would work like this. The options and open up and they just start set, just hammering out the things they could do and they just get really excited. I, it's, it's just wonderful to see. That's always a neat moment when yeah. the player kind of Like, wait, I'm not constrained it. in this way that I normally am constrained. So moving on from there, obviously you have a actually a pretty good product like i i mean i've played a few games of it uh i really enjoyed it myself well, thank and, you yeah thanks uh, from everything i've heard from the later play tests it's always seemed like you guys have always just taken it another step taking it another step so thinking about that i'm going to take it to over to richard on this one all right knowing that you have this really good product so how do you go about conveying the things that make your product good to prospective players. Well, uh, that's been an iterative process. Like many indie devs, none of us actually have a background in marketing or it's, it's the failure of a lot of indie devs where they have just something really nice and just a really cool game, but they have no idea how to tell people why they should care that they have a really cool game. You have to just get to the point where you just to put aside your insecurity and put aside your doubts about your game and just tell people, Hey, this is why I think my game is awesome. You should think it's awesome because I think it's awesome. So a bit of self-confidence there. A bit, a bit of self-confidence, a bit of fake it till you make it, but <laughs> we're, we're actually really blessed to have Richard. Um, all three of us are very introverted people, <laughs> but Richard has the ability to completely fake being an extrovert uh, successfully. And so he's uh, not only been able to go out there and show off our game, but he's taught us a lot about how to word things differently and speak differently so that we're not stepping on ourselves and turning people off. We're just opening the door and letting them see the things for themselves that we hope they'll enjoy in the game. That is just the first step, though, is getting people engaged. You still have to actually give them information about the game. And that's been another challenge because, you know, like we've been talking about this whole time, our systems, you know, it's it's pretty out. It's there are some quite a few familiar aspects people can latch on to, but we still have a lot to tell people. And that has been a real like, OK, so we explain it to somebody and then, OK, then they explain it to someone else. And then maybe, oh, I like how you explain that to the other person. Yeah. I should explain it to other people this way. You, you have to decide where to lead in and how much detail and what mediums to have. Like if you're doing a short Facebook post or something, then you don't have a whole lot of space to tell someone about something. It's like, OK, I could go into exact detail of exactly how the morale system works. And so if your morale gets above this point, you rally and you come back in and stuff. And that's, you know, it's a very good and important mechanic to the game. It's not mm-hmm. that hard to understand. What's hard is when you have a tiny amount of text and you have a tiny amount of space to get someone's attention and trying to communicate all that to them. So you just have to tell them the basic thing is, oh, yeah, our system's about who has advantage and it's about morale and it's an abstracted system. Yeah, it's like giving them just enough information to get them interested so that they can like go to your site exactly. or go to whatever 
a locations you have. Well, or even you don't even have to get them to go to a location. You just keep engaging with them and just keep talking to them. It's like they're like, oh, I really like that. How does how exactly does that work? And then I've been like, oh, I'm glad you asked. Here's exactly how that works in extreme detail. Yeah, because I, you asked, I now feel comfortable telling you. <laughs> yeah, you have to make sure not to overwhelm the player with exactly. Too much detail. You, you just drone on with a wall of text, and people just completely tune out. Yeah, we've done the flip side too, because there there are certainly people who want the opposite. They want to see the whole game, and we wanted to mm. make sure that we had PDFs of our how you make characters, how you do our combat, especially being as different as it is, and our setting. And so, while we've gotten a lot of feedback of "Oh, I really love that," and you know, I paged through it and I played it, there are certainly people who go. Yeah, you know, I will do that when the full game comes out, but can you show me in a short time frame so I don't have to spend two hours on your game? And we wanted to not require people to read a college textbook just to get into our game. So yeah, looking a bit further into that whole idea, you know, conveying the information about the game and such, with any indie project, I think it's very important that you get your community kind of rallying around the product. So what were some of the methods that you guys kind of looked into for that? Um, seeing as you're doing a Kickstarter, I know you've done a few things. Well, yeah, there are lots of out- online communities and stuff you can reach out to, but honestly, the best way we found is just engaging with people like on a personal level. And you can do that online, but it's way easier to do that face-to-face like we've gone to a couple game stores and talked to people we've done a couple conventions we did OrcaCon a couple weeks back and we got some people really excited about the game we yeah it was a, it was a ton really of supporting us now and we yeah. were at SakuraCon last year yeah, yeah we, we were at SakuraCon we last, last year. year we didn't get on the schedule though but the people we did manage to pull we we pulled someone off a Doctor Who game and they got really excited into it and completely forgot about Doctor Who lost their seat it was great well, like, I, I kind of want to, like, segue off a little bit on what Richard was talking about, engaging people personally. That's kind of been, like, what I've been doing. You know, lots of times we'll, like, post, like, big posts to everyone. And then for a long time, we didn't get too many. We got lots of people seeing our posts, but we didn't get lots of people talking about us or, like, we didn't know if people were really as interested as we hoped they'd be. And so I just really went around and talked. It, you'd be surprised the importance of one person. Like, especially for indie indie uh, developers, I think it's important to remember that you need to engage with your audience and that you need to remember that uh, that, that one person can be... So one fan is actually really important, surprisingly important, because one fan can be that much many shares away from you. Um, it's one more link to the rest of humanity. Yeah, we just want to say thanks. We've had several people who've loved our game and gone out and told more people than we could get to with our yeah. network. And it, it's... As a designer, it's really great to see people loving your creation so much that they spend their own time going out and talking it up and not just enjoying it, but getting others into their their personal enjoyment of it. Yeah, it really helps to find uh, the scene around you for what you're making. So in our case, a tabletop game, you find people who uh, like tabletop games and you talk to them and that's you talk to local people who like tabletop games and other local people who make tabletop games and uh, you can get a lot of help from them. You can find out what they like, what they don't like. All those kinds Just of things. Just reach out and, and ask. So. And then, you know, people like people like helping and they like being part of the process. If you bring people in and let them be a part, then they're more willing to, you know, shout your names from the rafters. And we've gotten a lot of actual content from people because there's only three of us. And no matter how much research we oh. do and how much our personal game experience, there are people who will create powers and abilities and say, can I do this in your game? And I'll write it down on a notepad and say, in a week, I promise you, you can do that because that is really cool and yeah. I want to implement that for so you. So much awesome from Playtesters, honestly. Listen, it's very good. Ask and listen. 
So you guys uh, chose to go the Kickstarter route for uh, funding the project. So some questions I would have on that particular regard is, you know, why choose Kickstarter in particular? And also uh, some of the decisions you made knowing that this is where you were going to do some funding. So Kickstarter is the biggest crowdfunding site there is. I mean, if you're going to do crowdfunding, you, you want to do it on Kickstarter. So that's the main reason you choose Kickstarter. Going into it, we wanted to make sure we had a community. So Kickstarter is where you go to build a community, but it's not where you go to start building a community. It's not where you lay the foundation. You want to build a community before you start a Kickstarter. So we tried to talk to and engage with as many people as we could before we did Kickstarter, before we even mentioned doing Kickstarter. There are other options for publishing RPGs. Like there's uh, print on demand through like drive through RPG and such. But the thing is, we we really wanted to have a, a very nice-looking product that had art and everything, and just the amount of art we could get without upfront funding, we wouldn't be happy with it. Especially, you know, our game's about monsters and yokai. It's really about these cool things in Japanese culture, and, you know, because it's a foreign idea to a lot of people, it's hard to visualize if you don't have, like, a picture of a thing, you know, just sitting there, and especially a nice picture. Yeah, people are generally pretty visual. It's very important to give visual aids. Like, even even in video games, like, being aware of showing the concepts that you need to do, even, especially with abstract concepts in video games, that's really hard. But, like, we have a lot of really crazy ideas in our game, and we wanted to make sure that when people read our book, um, they get the right kind of feeling. They get, to, they get to start imagining, jumpstart their imagination, so to speak. So, uh, I think it's important do that we chose like kickstarter you know because it's great for doing things like that yeah we went with crowdfunding mostly to finish off the few things that we couldn't do internally we don't have an on-staff artist uh we wanted to bring someone in to edit the book a little bit more professionally at the end and then just a little bit of funding to help us get through the last couple of months of playtesting focus on that rather than paying rent and eating (laughs) so what we did was we worked on the game as much as we could the things that we could do internally and showed it to people and the ones that were excited to see where it went we asked them come with us and help us make this the final really good project that everyone will enjoy like i've been saying this a lot through the project because like honestly i'm so grateful that even this many people have gotten to us to this amount of Uh, funding it's been wonderful yeah like I, i i can't even express how much how good it feels because like to know that there's these people out there that, that care about your project. It's actually a dream come true for me as a designer. And like the idea of working together with the people you're making your project for is also part of one of my dreams. Like the idea that we cut out the middleman and we work directly with the people who are going to play our games. That's a very powerful thing about crowdsourced games. Yeah, we really love our backers. We're always being like, oh, let's give our backers more stuff. Let's give them this. And then I have to be like, no, we can't afford it. <laughs> yeah, we're we're really lucky to uh, to be in a time where things like this exist so you don't have to worry about whether a publisher will pick up a small project like this and whether the people will understand your words and, and your implementation, we can really look ahead uh, before the game comes out and say, is this clear? Can we make this easier for you to use? Are there more tools we can provide? And that, that makes a better game at yeah, the end. It makes something much greater in the end. Um, wanted to give a little shout out to a couple uh, to a couple places. Uh, first one, I wanted to give a shout out to OrcaCon. That this was the f- it last was, year was the first year. So yep. much fun! Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, we backed them on Kickstarter. Best decision. But yeah, so I uh, wanted to give a shout out to that. That's a board game con, if I'm not mistaken. Just like t- tabletop board game. Yeah, tabletop, tabletop and board game. Yes, and it's uh, it's all about uh, especially with a focus on uh, 
inclusivity in tabletop games, including women and people of color and that sort of thing. And not even that. I met some guys that were running a Pokemon football game. And, you know, being in a nerd community and not being teased about loving football. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> you think it's funny, but when you feel included for the first time or something you rarely feel, that's an environment where a convention is just a magical place to be. Yeah, it's it's like one of the best things about conventions is that if the convention does make you feel welcome, even despite all your nerdness and weirdness and, and, and everything, it matters a lot. Yeah, it was great. Even though it was small, it's going to be even more amazing next year. I can tell already. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be awesome. I really want to be there next year. While we're doing shout outs, uh, also, I'd like to do a shout out to Cherry Picked Games, who uh, we talked to at Orcon. They were a great help. And also, uh, Laboratory Games, who we had talked to before. I know, I know one of the guys behind Laboratory Games. Uh, thanks, Clayton. You're awesome. <laughs> I guess since we are on the shout out train, uh, I will want to talk about, uh, Valorous Games. I met them at SakuraCon last year. Uh, I knew I forgot about someone. Yeah, yeah. I met them at SakuraCon last year and talking about just asking, right? Like, I, I don't know. I just went up and asked them. They were this other Bendy Tabletop company and I was just really excited that there was just another bunch of people doing the same thing I wanted to do in, in the same room. And so I kind of just nerded out them and I asked them, Hey, are you guys interested? And since then, we've got this correspondence that's, that's just awesome. They've done a lot for us and they, they always make sure that when we're in the same group and we're in the same con or something they'll stop by it's like the nicest thing ever so yeah you make a lot of friends in our industry it's yeah. you know not only are we not mining for coal for a living we're making games which is great to be in with but oh yeah people in our industry are amazing they're here because they want to have fun and you know you can feel it they're, they love their work they love seeing your work yeah, they want to help you. Lots of people want to help you. You'd be surprised. Like, you think, oh, no one wants to help me. No, that's not true. You just got to find the people who do, and they're everywhere. Really, I only had one shout-out, but you guys covered You guys <laughs> covered the rest of the shout-outs I needed to put in there. I wanted to make sure a few things. Uh, Santa, you got anything? This is more of a, an amusing question, but uh, any particular funny moments uh, in, like, playtesting or designing stuff? <laughs> oh, that no, you want to share? this is coming. <laughs> like... Do you want the big story we always talk about, or do you, and just the, okay? The first one that comes to mind is SakuraCon of last year because during that Friday session, we had like less time, so I wanted to do a smaller campaign. I didn't do a lot of setup, right? And so, like, I just did this campaign where the townspeople moved out of their town, and that it was like because of some sort of natural disaster, then it was invaded by Tanuki, okay? And I, in hindsight, I realized a lot of the mistakes with, with the kind of, that kind of setup because you think, well, the Tanuki are the bad guys or, or, or whatever. But that's not what happened in this playtest. Like, and, you know, I love the playtesters. And in fact, the playtesters apparently had lots of fun. I asked them. I tried to make sure I went along with it. It ended up working out fine, just great. But it was just pretty memorable because it ended up their final battle was just literally, I don't know if you want me to explain how the situation got to it, but it was literally, they were, the party was fighting like an entire town of grandmas, right? <laughs> and like, like Tanuki all turned into the same old lady and, and then the, and the party was just content to, oh. to, to wail on this old lady. <laughs> wow. I don't. <laughs> Andrew learned that day how game masters need to say no sometimes. I, yes, you need to say no sometimes. Hey, if people didn't enjoy when tabletop games went off the rails, then I don't think people would play tabletop RPGs <laughs> as much. They, they had fun, and and you know what? They were happy I went along with them. They were actually really happy. They were asking me if I if they could do that and stuff like that, and I just kind of like, are you sure? And I asked everyone if it was okay. And, you know, I made sure that everyone else in the in the group was okay with these actions happening, and they're like, okay, we'll just deal with it. And everyone had fun, and so far, I don't think we've had a playtest where someone's blatantly ha not had fun so yeah like 
I just, can just a note to listeners: our setting is serious too. It is not all punching. Uh, it's not all punching and ridiculousness. Though. There, there are serious things that happen. Somber, mysterious, dark. Yes, things. yes. The original setting is actually quite melancholy, but uh, that you know we are all silly inside too, so it comes out. I can tell a short story, a little short story that's going to make Andrew blush here. Oh no! We were playtesting. Um, Andrew was running it, and I was uh, taking notes. Mm-hmm. And about half an hour in, I noticed he started kind of staring off into space and. Uh, he was, his face was turning a little red, and I, I asked him if he was okay. He said, oh, I have a slight fever. And oh, uh, no. about another 20 minutes in, he wasn't even able to form sentences. And we actually had to rush him to the hospital. Wow. Um, because he, he wouldn't listen to us. He wouldn't stop the game. He was he felt so bad that he had asked these playtesters in. He wouldn't leave them. And uh, so I ended up in the ER that night. It was yeah. not a fun night. Um, but, <laughs> Another lesson Andrew had to learn that he can't game master when he's unconscious. So <laughs> Yeah. I couldn't I could barely breathe by the end of that. Oh man. That's some dedication. <laughs> you could call it that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't kill yourself. No, that. that's not that's, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'd say we've uh, we've done the full gambit of uh, a lot of good things. I want to thank all of you uh, for being here. Um, we'll thank do you for having us. Yeah, thank oh, you. Yeah, this was awesome. It was really a lot of fun, actually. Honestly, I'd be happy to be back on. Oh, well, you know, just make another game. You know, um, that's, <laughs> well, that's the first bit. Richard has five games well, on our uh, post ship schedule already. So, so, so the thing they teach you at Digipen is like, yeah, uh, it's not like I pitched these ideas or cheap. Just there are always game ideas. We just ideas we so good them. they need to be published. That's true. He Richard is special. His ideas are like they must be done as soon as they come out. If he'll yeah. like he'll like just blurt them out and they must be done. If you ever meet Richard at a convention, ask him about Yokai Punk and expect <laughs> to spend about half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. So um reintroductions and then we're gonna go ahead and sign off. So we'll start with you. I'm Andrew. I am the lead designer at Warding Circle right now for Mysteries of the Yokai. Uh Matt, I'm the systems guy and do a lot of content and balance and work on getting Andrew's stuff into a playable state so other people can experience it. Richard, producer, editor, and keep Andrew from killing himself. <laughs> That's like a very important job. Yeah, I was going to say, seems like an important job. <laughs> uh, I'm Santir, technical director for Vernacular Games. And I'm Redcoat, lead designer and producer for Vernacular Games. So that covers it for our interview with the makers of Mysteries of the Yokai, a.k.a. Warding Circle. So go out there and uh, check it out on the Kickstarter. They've still got several days left. You can also find uh, all of our preview materials and the whole game basically on uh, mysteriesoftheyokai.com. It has like all the information you need pretty much. Yeah, check it out. You can basically play the game. Yeah, you you can play the game. In a cut down state right now. Yeah, yeah. And we love hearing from people. If you have questions or suggestions, there are plenty of outlets. You can uh, Facebook, check us on Facebook, email us directly. If you are a Kickstarter backer, uh, use the comments section. We love to get your gameplay experiences playable in our system. Yes, we want the game to work for you. All righty. And with that, play the games you want to play, boyos. This is Redcoat, signing off. And this is Santier, signing off. <laughs>